0: My fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fay and today we are going back to Grover, Cleveland and doing our second annual, not Grover, Cleveland, second term question and answer episode. I love keeping the president's order and so having Grover is 22 and 24. We're not going to recap his home. You can go back and listen to episode 22 and get that content, but now we'll get to dig into some more questions. I definitely recommend listening back to last season's episode 24. Among the questions that I got last year were what Zodiac sign made the best president? What's the coolest presidential pet? Do wars make great presidents? What did certain presidents carry in their pockets, which I love. And then my favorite presidential site, as well as a few more. And so you can go back and listen to that and definitely supplement what we're going to hear about today. And just as a little peek behind the curtain, I get the questions and then I like write them down and I don't look at them again. So I'm not like pouring over them. I want to answer them in kind of real time for you, except for some of the questions that need a little bit of research. But in terms of my opinions, in terms of my favorites, I want to do that for you as I'm thinking of them. And so I think maybe that'll be a little bit more entertaining. The show only works with your support. And I'm so gratified again to get questions from around the different supporters who've been listening to the podcast. I want to thank those. Those who have already supported the podcast, all of you who have liked and subscribed to the social media, the social media keeps growing on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Each one of those sites is seeing even more traffic. The website is also seeing increased users from around the world, which I think is really cool. You are helping make that possible. And so I ask that you continue to think about ways that you can help support either through writing a review helping to get the word out by telling other people about it, liking and subscribing on the social media. There's also, of course, financially. I wanted to thank those who have already donated. At the top of Mount Rushmore is Tom and Sammy Fakash, Nancy and Terry Workamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakash, Harvey and Casey Hyman, Connie and Adam Luck, and I'm adding Andrew Alexander. I like saying his name at the end of the donors. I think it is a great capper, but he has given a few times, and you'll hear in a bonus episode to come about our own travels, and so uh, definitely adding Andrew to the top of that list. Other donors are Jim and Catherine Hyman, Gail Rittenhouse, Stephanie Gaskill, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, Alexis Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Callahan, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Jim and Laura Braylor, Eric Engartner, Patricia Argentina, Kara Steiner, Jamie and Ted Wilson, Candy and Ben Phelps, Lana Demers, and Craig Hunter. Thank you all for all of your support, and I hope you enjoy the questions that we're going to get today. I had told you that you could ask about anything, and so it could be about birthplaces, it could be about the homes, even though that is our feature for this season. Presidents, First Ladies, whatever it is that you're interested in. And so without further ado, I'm going to jump right into it. Stephanie Gaskell, big supporter of the podcast, asked, who would have been a great president but never ran? And I thought that was a really interesting question, especially because we get so many people who run and are kind of the also-rans and might have been great, but, you know, their timing was off. But in terms of people who just never run for the presidency, again, it kind of depends on what you're looking for in a president. And our ideas have really changed over time. I always ask students, what are the qualities that you'd look for in a president? president. And they say somebody who's honest. They say somebody who can communicate well. And then we elect people who uniformly almost never (laughs) do those things. We find people who are going to, you know, be in some ways compromised. And are either lifelong politicians and they get our mistrust, or they're people who have these shady backgrounds. And so, without being too specific, I think you know who I'm talking about, right? Like, we're talking about all of them. And so, in terms of people who just never ran, but would have been kind of great throughout the 1800s, I think there are certainly men and it would have all been men at this point, who would have made good executives and displayed that in other ways. And of course, in the 1800s, you know, you wouldn't have been running in the way that we see the politicians today. Remember that a lot of times you would have been kind of nominated and told you're going to be the candidate without you putting your skin in the game. Of course, there were men who were angling for it behind the scenes. But in terms of the way that we see people coming for their entire lives, wanting to be president, you didn't see that as much back then. So when I think about some of the people who I think would have been really great, the first that comes to mind with the 1800s is William Seward, who you heard me talk about in episode 13 when talking about Millard Fillmore and some of the -the behind-the-scenes wrangling in the state of New York. I just have really found him very fascinating in terms of what he brings to the table. I think John Sherman, you know, you would probably consider him somebody who ran. I think he would have been really interesting as an executive. He was somebody who we see having a lot of ideas in congress and having those passed and i just think having somebody who's a bit more hands-on during the 1800 during the gilded age would have made for some different results than you know certainly what we had military experience of course is going to give us some of our bigger leaders in the 1800s as well and so thinking about the fallout of having some of those individuals who would have turned to politics. And so I'm thinking of John Sherman's brother, William Tecumseh, might have been an interesting candidate or president. And then when we get into the 20th century, you know, n- now that we can expand it a bit more, I think when you look at the chutzpah behind individuals like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was able to get a lot accomplished from, you know, certainly people having their dander up anytime the suffragettes brought their issues to the fore, you know, being able to still press on, I like that in an individual, and I think that would have been something that would have been great to have rewarded. As a country, we were betwixt by the idea of having somebody like a Charles Lindbergh, you know, some of the more celebrity-angled people in those positions, and you got to think again about what we would have been asking for from them. Certainly, I think if some of our civil rights figures, people like Martin Luther King, who does a lot outside of the legislative arena and still gets a lot accomplished, I think he would have obviously been a really good candidate. Cesar Chavez, who's able to rally an entire community and, again, push for some real change, visible change in our country. I've always been really kind of won over by the writings and musings of people like Will Rogers or H.L. Mencken, who I think brought a different approach to the political arena. They were slicing through some of the phoniness that was there and maybe would have brought a sorely needed buffer <laughs> between you know what we were seeing kind of getting out of control in the political arena and, and making it so that the American people did feel like they were being talked to in a more direct way. It's kind of hard today to think of, you know, too many people who would be great for the job in that, by and large, the people who become famous, they become famous for ways that I think would make them compromised in our kind of perfect way of looking at what we want out of a president. My next question appropriately comes from Grover Cleveland Art Appreciation Society. I shouted out the Grover Cleveland Art Appreciation Society in episode 22, so you've already heard me talk about that, but I am always just completely floored by the content that he's able to provide on Instagram, and I definitely recommend you checking that out. Who is asking about my revisiting presidential sites. If you've been following along on the social media, you know that I went back through some of these places for third, fourth time, In the two summers of COVID, 2020 and 2021, some of those places weren't open completely or the access to different parts of the sites were changed. And so his question was, what are you looking for when you go back to revisiting a presidential site? And I thought that was a really interesting question. Certainly on my first time, I'm trying to get a complete overview. I really look at interpretation. That's probably the biggest thing. What are they talking about? What are they having you focus on? One of the little peaks behind the curtain that I'm going to provide you is that by and large, I do enough research going into a site that I'm very rarely surprised by what I find. And that isn't to say that (laughs) I know everything. It's just that I kind of do go in knowing what I'm going to see, knowing what the signs are going to be about. I know a lot of these presidents backwards and forwards. So I will know a lot of the stories that they might tell. And so to me, it's more interesting to think through, well, what would they be focusing on? And how would they direct new listeners to that, new visitors to that content? One of the things I've been noticing, especially when I go to presidential museums, is how family oriented they are. How are they trying to get visitors from different ages, different backgrounds to be able to access the content? By and large, what you'll find is a lot of these presidential sites had a lot of their content that was geared towards white middle-class families, and that's just you know by virtue of who was doing a lot of the traveling for so long. And so What do they expect people to know coming in about that individual? How are they presenting the content? How do they get into controversies around some of the individuals? I also, of course, am looking at what changed in the different times that I've gone. And for some of these sites, now we're talking about over a decade of different travels where I've been to Monticello in the nineties in the aughts and now into the teens and twenties. And so I have seen the interpretation change so much. And some of these sites that I had my own feelings about and give them another chance. Sometimes you will find content that is a little bit different or that they have improved over time. For some people, of course, that's going to mean that they're talking a lot more about race. They're talking a lot more about these issues that maybe they didn't want to focus on. And that always just makes me laugh a bit. <laughs> like, what did you expect to go to a plantation and not have <laughs> slavery be talked about? Uh and you know, I think it says more about that visitor than it does about the site itself. He also asked is it possible you still have a must-see list of presidential sites, and what are the ones that are still on that list? For me, a lot of that is going to be about those presidential sites that are just off-limits, and every now and then you'll get people in some of these communities that say, yeah, I was able to go in Zachary Taylor's home in Louisville, for instance, or Grover Cleveland's Westland in Princeton, that I still want to be able to go inside A lot of them are going to be the presidents that are still alive right now, who have homes that are amazing. When they do inevitably pass, and spoiler alert, they all shall, um, will we have access to those sites? When I go through San Clemente, for instance, and see La Casa Pacifica, I would love to be able to go inside that. I just know that I'm never going to have the kind of money to live in a place like that, uh, stay in a place like that. There are some that are kind of out of reach in that way. And just the egalitarian in me, I would love to see all the presidents be represented, but I'd also love to have their homes be accessible in that way. And the difference is, of course, that the role of the presidency has changed so much, and what you can do in your post-presidency has changed as well. I'm going to throw it out there. The one that I am dedicated to doing by the time I die, I want to stay in the presidential suite at the Waldorf Astoria. I've already looked into it. It's about $12,000 a night, and that is a bucket list. That is something that, by the end of my life, I will stay there. And even if it's just for a night, that is something that I want to have in my lifetime. So throwing it out there just so that you know, (laughs) but that's something I'm shooting for. Thank you for those questions. My next question comes from friend of the pod and one of my own best friends, Jim Hyman. We went to high school together and then I lured him to Ohio State when I was a senior. He was a first year we even took some classes together, but I've always been just so grateful to continue to have him in my life. His question is about Grover Cleveland. So we get a Grover-specific question, and he's asking about that gap between his terms. What effect did that have on the way he governed in his second term? And I'm going to bend it a little bit to also say, which presidents could have benefited from having <laughs> a gap? You know, Would they have learned from some of the mistakes and come back and been able to accomplish something better? So when I think about some of the presidents who were limited to just one term and might have been able to do something really kind of interesting with a second term. First person who comes to mind is John Quincy Adams, who I think has a really distinguished career and just runs into the buzzsaw that is Andrew Jackson. So he's the first person who really comes to mind who I think would have been able to do more. I won't include James Polk. I think he really ran himself ragged, and I don't think he would have been effective in a second term. I think Herbert Hoover would have been able to do something a bit different if the complete focus hadn't been on the economy. I mean, who knows what we would have done in the world of diplomatic affairs, how a President Hoover would have handled some of those situations. And so he definitely stands out to me. I'm willing to give both Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter the benefit of the doubt that a second term with them having lost an election in both cases in a very close way and then be able to come back and have their own go at things and really have things on their own terms. Again, I think Jimmy Carter suffers from what's going to be really kind of outside of his control. And we'll get into that later in the season. Now in terms of some of the two term presidents who I think could have used a cooling off period, <laughs> the first one that comes to mind is Ulysses Grant, <laughs> where I think maybe we should have limited him to one term. But if he had to have two terms Maybe he didn't need that second one to be right in line with what he had done the first time around. Maybe he would have had an opportunity to rectify some of those situations had he had a second term. Teddy Roosevelt is always going to be somebody who I think we think about when it comes to him making that promise that he was going to quit after his own duly elected term and then call it a day. He regretted it. I think we as a country really always wonder kind of what would have been had Teddy had another go at things. I think Nixon needed a timeout. I'll just say that. I think he probably could have benefited from people telling him to cool his jets if he had lost in 1972 and then been able to kind of get his act together. I mean, he either would have become more evil, more paranoid, more aggressive, or he would have been somebody who could have said, okay, there are bigger things out here. I don't know that he would have survived having lost two elections in in quite such a way, so who knows what we would have unleashed had he had a second term like that. But our three boomer or boomer-adjacent presidents I think all experience something that we have seen, where a second term isn't always the greatest thing, right? where oftentimes you immediately become a lame duck, and there's almost never any huge accomplishments in the second term, and almost always these opportunities for scandal. And that's usually what we think about with Reagan, it's Iran-Contra, with the Bush presidency, you have all of these different things that kind of torpedo it with Bill Clinton, it's the Monica Lewinsky saga that breaks out in that second term. And so maybe any one of them, if we just maybe had term limits and said, you can only do one term, be like France, and make it a longer, but one term, maybe things would have worked out a bit differently and we'd be talking about a different order of our top presidents. And so definitely something to chew on. My next question comes from Maxfield Field Max is now a track and field coach at Western Oregon University. I had him as a Sunday school student back in Ohio and have just really loved being able to stay in touch with him. And very few people put me through my paces in terms of when I would just say something banal, he would always challenge it. He's somebody that I'm always interested in what he's thinking. His question, he's an English major and has published poetry, and his question is about presidents and their favorite books or authors. So, this did require some research on my part, being able to find, you know, what are the books that presidents either mentioned loving or had be really influential in their lives, and there is actually a site that had some of the books that presidents had mentioned. For Barack Obama, he had Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon that I had to read for AP English, and I remember being really just kind of taken away by the visual storytelling that Tony Morrison really had, and so I can definitely relate on that one. Bill Clinton was a big fan of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which I thought was really cool. He was very well-read. He was always reading different books, different works people noted that he was always wanting to talk about the different books that were just coming out and you wonder where you'd find the pockets of time when you're president and you know he was always preoccupied with different things and so definitely the fact that he was able to find the time to read Marcus Aurelius every year is pretty monumental. George H.W. Bush said multiple times that his favorite book was Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, so he was always reading that. And then you have Ronald Reagan with The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. I'll leave my own... observations about what that says about ronald reagan that it was a tom clancy book height of the cold war that was really getting him going but you can make your own conclusions on that they always say that john f kennedy loved from russia with love that would be made into a james bond movie And I could see him really getting caught up in it. Keep in mind, he was himself an author and had won the Pulitzer. He had Profiles in Courage being his most famous work, but the fact that he was able to unwind with something as pulpy as an Ian Fleming novel is really interesting. His predecessor and several others really loved Mark Twain, with Dwight Eisenhower saying he really loved a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. We know that Franklin Roosevelt, for whatever reason, you can again make your own conclusion, loved himself some Rudyard Kipling, and when you think about the white man's burden and how influential that would be at the time that he was in college, you know, you can kind of see where that would happen. We know Teddy was himself really influenced by Alfred Thayer Mann's influence of sea power upon history. And again, you can see the conclusions there. We know James Garfield loved Robinson Crusoe, and then Abraham Lincoln, remember, we talked about some of the books that he loved when he was growing up. He especially fond of Parson Weems and his book on George Washington, but he was Also, really well read when it came to his Shakespeare. He loved Macbeth in particular. Yeah, we want to think that the presidents are just spending their time reading like policy and position papers. And it does do you some good to know that they do read fiction. I was told by a colleague in grad school that grad school will ruin your ability to read fiction. And it really has come to pass. One of the books that I bonded with Max over was the book East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And it's always very gratifying to know that other people find that book as illuminating as it was for me. I used to read it every summer. I have a hard time finding one the time, but two, being able to like let my mind relax and take in fiction, and so I'm very jealous of the presidents who are able to do that, And and I really appreciate the question from Max and something that we had in common, and that was our love of reading, and so hope that answered your question, Max. My next question comes from Connie Luck. and I've talked about Connie before. She and I went to high school together and then eventually Ohio State, and she has been a big supporter of the podcast from the very beginning. I've always appreciated her feedback on the podcast, and I am so glad that she sent in some questions. Her questions both are about finances. She said, who are the top three wealthiest and poorest presidents when they came into the White House, and then who made the most and lost the most financially after leaving? This is, of course, a bit of a tricky question where we do have some presidents whose net worth is the source of great debate, and there are some presidents who might have had a lot of assets, but in terms of, you know, how much fungible cash they had, that might have been a very different story. We have others who have a lot that is reported, but then there is that question about how much they actually do possess and how we ascertain that, and so when we come to our most wealthy presidents coming in, the vast number of them are going to have made their money through plantations and that's just a fact right George Washington we believe had around 700 million dollars in real estate and in business assets Thomas Jefferson was around 300 million Andrew Jackson had about 150 million James Madison 130 million John Tyler 68 million James Monroe, $36 million. They were all very wealthy. Those who were not related in any way to plantations and still had wealth, you know, Donald Trump is at the top of that list. And again, it's just according to what source you go by in terms of how much money he has. I know that's a source of a lot of contention right now. (laughs) And so maybe at some point we will learn the actual truth. But in terms of real estate assets, he is at the very top of that and in the billions. Teddy Roosevelt would have been very wealthy. We believe he had about $168 million. All told, Franklin Roosevelt is not too far behind. Lyndon Johnson made a lot of money before becoming president. Mainly through the oil industry. Herbert Hoover was a self made millionaire. In terms of those who have benefited after the presidency, keep in mind that by and large, it is a very recent occurrence to have presidents who benefit so much after it was kind of taboo for presidents to cash in on their fame, on their presidency. And that is a late 20th century occurrence where we start to see them get over it, really. But, you know, Harry Truman. Is going to live in the same house that he did before, drive the same car that he had before, and be very conscientious about not taking anything that would, in some ways, defame the office that he had occupied. He does not want to capitalize on that whatsoever. Jimmy Carter is much the same way, right? Where if you read about Jimmy Carter and all of the money that he has made, it's through his books, and is very conscientious about not taking on positions that might, in some ways, look like he had some kind of conflict of interest. In terms of then that change, I really do look to Richard Nixon, who was always very conscious of where he did not fit in with the East Coasters. And he was thinking through his presidency, how he was going to have money when the presidency was over. And so, in that interregnum between him being vice president and president, he was on the lecture circuit, and he was cashing some checks. And afterwards, he's going to be writing books and doing whatever it took to stay in the public eye so that he could make money. And the presidents who come after him, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, both George Bushes, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, have all benefited very well from being post-president. Bill Clinton famously gets this huge book contract for his memoirs. That is not the same for every president, although... Some were able to make enough money to, you certainly pay some bills. But when you look at the very bottom of the list of presidents who were wealthy, Harry Truman is at the very bottom of the list. Calvin Coolidge, very bottom of the list. Some of them would get a pension. This is when we start talking about the latter part of the 19th century. They start to get pensions, but still not a lot to you know certainly be super rich on. And that, of course, is going to all change as time goes along. My next question comes from friend or frenemy of the pod, Matthew Hochstetler, who has been a big supporter from the very beginning. He likes to send me stuff just to get me agitated, but you can listen to our episode from last season. We visited presidential sites together for a while now, and actually saw him this year down in Miami. One of his interesting questions, and he sent several, was about presidents and the limitations of travel and campaigning back in the day, and whether or not the American people not getting to see these candidates, if that had any effect on the individuals that we elected. And again, I think it's interesting to look at these elections through the prism of like, what has changed over time? What about our expectations have changed over time? Keep in mind, as we've talked about in season two, a lot of the time when you're looking at the 19th century with the presidential candidates, you were doing what you were told. There wasn't a whole lot of choice going into it. You were part of the party, you were a member of the party, And the party told you who the candidate was going to be. And it was just about showing up. Today, we get very caught up in whether or not we like somebody. And you can think through all of the different ideas that we have about what a president should be, and whether or not they're checking all of our boxes, if they have something that we disagree with. That was not the case during this period. You did not have primaries, and I can't emphasize enough how little input you as a voter would have had on who the candidate was going to be. And then after that, you were either voting along with your party, Remember, you're voting in two separate places at this time. So you would show up where your party told you to show up. You would put your ticket in and would already have printed out who you were voting for. That was it. It was a numbers game. It wasn't about your feelings. It wasn't about your personal preferences. Once we start to get into that period where our own preference matters and what we're looking for in a candidate matters, then it does become really essential that you are going to have these politicians who are going to sell themselves to you and promise what they're going to do and and make these guarantees that I will never do this or I will always do this. And obviously today we can be very jaded about whether or not they follow through on their promises. Spoiler alert, most of them do not. But the idea is going to have been very, very different. We wouldn't have had presidents, frankly, like Rutherford Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, Chester Arthur, the list is long of people in the 19th century who just would not have flown in today's politics of personal preference, just would not have been a thing. And so it does make the politicians very different. Now, keep in mind those politicians also then were not in any way indebted to you as a people, as constituents. You did what you were told to do, right? So they were going to do what they thought was in their own best interest or in the best interest of their party in some cases. But there wasn't this interaction the way that we have today. So it does make things very, very different. Now we can see where this has obviously gone really, really far in the other direction, right? Where we have politicians today who have no business being in their elected positions, and they don't even make any bones about whether or not they're there for policy purposes or just for communications. And we can think of a lot of first-term congressmen who make that same statement, Matt's other question is about the role of the First Lady and how that has changed over time. And it is something that we're charting through this season where we look at the First Ladies who, for a while, you're just talking about being a president's wife. And there is a role that goes with that, right? You have to stand beside him, in some cases, doing the softening of that individual. When you think of like a Dolly Madison or a Sarah Polk, they're making their husbands more palatable to the people in Washington, as time goes along and you're starting to get women who really kind of gravitate to the role, I'm thinking of a Mary Todd Lincoln or a Julia Grant, women who are going to be putting their own stamp on the office, that, of course, is going to to make things very different. When we talked in recent weeks about Frances Cleveland or Caroline Harrison, you know, they're just trying to make the most of the time that they're in the executive mansion and raising a family, right? They just want to make things livable in some situations. When we get into the 20th century, that's when we're going to start seeing it about being a really kind of public role, where the First Lady is going to be among the most photographed people in the country. And for people like Lou Hoover or Florence Harding or Eleanor Roosevelt, that can be a real change of things. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to be a politician's wife, and when I say politician's wife, you immediately conjure a specific image and down the road, of course, yes, we will be having a first husband at some point. But the idea that you are going to have to perform certain tasks and always be smiling and you know putting yourself second and letting your husband kind of dictate what the family does and, and you really being the mouthpiece. In some cases, we had first ladies who were far more popular than their husbands. Now, when we start to get into unofficial roles. That really does start with Jacqueline Kennedy, who is going to make the beautification of the White House and getting back to its historical roots a project for her. And then it goes right into Lady Bird Johnson, who's going to make, she hated the phrase, beautification, but making these unsightly parts of our country a bit more beautiful. That is something that she really focused on. Then you have Betty Ford, who's going to be outspoken on topics that she cared about, including the Equal Rights Amendment and is upfront about her health diagnosis when she gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And so she makes that uh, a prominent part. Rosalind Carter had a seat in the cabinet room, and she was a big proponent of mental health. You had Nancy Reagan whom combating drug use a big topic. Barbara Bush, who was focused on literacy. her daughter-in-law Laura does the same thing. And then you have Hillary Clinton, who focused on health care and on women's rights and making that a really kind of prominent topic. And then with Michelle Obama, she had as her topic combating childhood obesity and getting people moving and and Melania Trump focused on I believe online bullying, but with all of these anymore, that can be the source of a lot of controversy as well, where people want the first ladies to be seen and not heard, and you have all sorts of different things, especially as we get into this period of social media, but by and large, we see the first ladies, many of whom you know, married the individual, did not say, I want to marry the future president, and who have really kind of struggled under the weight of that office. Showtime recently had the miniseries First Lady that focused on Eleanor Roosevelt, Betty Ford, and then Michelle Obama, and how they each dealt with certain things in their private into public life, and how that transition was difficult for all three of those women. And you have to imagine if that series had kept going, and they could get into some of the others, I think it would have been, one, fascinating. But two, you would really would have seen a lot of through lines in terms of how those First Ladies really kind of Chafed underneath that spotlight. It's not something that we are very fair on in terms of what we expect out of these individuals who are unelected and are still expected to show up and be there for the country and be a a source of hope or inspiration or whatever it is that you're looking for with the first lady. So thank you again for that question, Matthew. Now that leads right into a question from Lana Demers. I stayed with Lana and boyfriend Craig Hunter, who does the music at the beginning of the podcast when I was in Washington, D.C., and Lana has also been a big supporter of the podcast from the very beginning. Her question is about style and fashion for the First Ladies and the Presidents. Was any President deemed as stylish by the public or had a particular interest in fashion? And then were there any other fashionable First Ladies besides the obvious Jackie O.? Now, we talked a lot about Chester Arthur and his fashion, and one thing you'll find when you read about some of these presidents is a lot of times they'll say they were fashionable for the time, (laughs) which I just think is a tremendous amount of shade. I would put Chester at the top of that list as somebody who did enjoy dressing well, and you have other presidents who were also pretty fashionable. I did find a website that had the most fashionable presidents, and they were just rating them, I guess, for fit. Abraham Lincoln was their number 10. I didn't know this about Dwight Eisenhower, who's number 9, but apparently he had the jacket... The army jacket reframed so that it could fit a little bit tighter in certain places and be a little bit higher. And then the army is going to adopt it going forward. So, you know, he had his own sense of style. Don't necessarily think of him as being like a trendsetter. Um, Ronald Reagan makes the list. William Henry Harrison, who decided to go without a scarf. We can make all the jokes we want. Um, You have Teddy Roosevelt and then Thomas Jefferson. Franklin Roosevelt, And I think we're thinking more in terms of like iconic in those cases where we know exactly what they're dressed like, and they are pretty consistent in their clothing. Chester Arthur does make the list at number three. And again, he he is a bit of a fashion diva. He wanted 80 different pairs of shoes to go with his 80 different pairs of pants. And if you find me anybody like that today, let me know. I, I really need to talk to that person. John F. Kennedy made the list at number two. And again, I think it has more to do with like that iconic status where you see John F. Kennedy lounging on a yacht (laughs) and he looks great. And then you have him when he decides to go without a hat. And that was considered a big change. And people thought that was a real kind of mark against the generation. But then that really does kind of catch on. But he is somebody who you can imagine him both informal and formal. And in both cases, he really does dress the part. Number one for most fashionable president, you're going to be shocked, they do list Harry Truman, and the reason was because he was such a stickler about his own clothing, he worked in a haberdashery, and so is going to be very particular about what clothes he's wearing, and so that was where they give him the nod. For first ladies, you know, certainly Jacqueline Kennedy stands out. We had other first ladies who are going to be instrumental in helping you know change the way people dressed? We talked a bit about Dolly Madison and wearing a bit more of her décolletage, you know, showing her bosom a bit more. She was also a big fan of turbans and that catches on for a time. We start to see flowers being introduced with Harriet Lane, and then Mary Todd Lincoln, and then everybody starts taking that where they're putting them in their hair and wearing them around. People always noted the beauty of Julia Tyler, and she is going to, you know, take that role as presidentress, as she called herself, and really kind of maximize that. Frances Cleveland, she did not want the role, but people looked to her as a style icon at that time, and again, tells you a little bit more about that period than maybe it does about her. You have to go next to Grace Coolidge, who is going to have that kind of Marcelled short bob for a time in the White House, and wears really kind of fashionable clothing. I always think her First Lady portrait is one that definitely shows a changing of the guard in terms of what the First Lady was expected to be dressed like. Mamie Eisenhower was famous for instituting this new shade of pink, and they called it Mamie Pink, and people supposedly really got into the way that she was dressed. Nancy Reagan was always, according to many sources, very jealous of the notoriety that Jack Kennedy had, who was about the same age, I have to point out. They were very similar in age, and she wanted to be the kind of Republican answer to the Democratic Kennedy. And so she would wear, if you look at her, especially in the first term and like at the inauguration, she really wanted to be that style icon. And she gets in a bit of trouble about the way that she was using dress designers, and that does get her into trouble. We forget now that Hillary Clinton was also seen as somebody that was a bit of a trendsetter, her different hairstyles were always a source of a lot of consternation and gossip and in some cases praise. And then, of course, with Michelle Obama, where when she had dresses that didn't have sleeves, people went nuts. I mean, it was really a thing. And I think Melania Trump is, is pretty fashionable and really focused on the aesthetics. And that was something that people really noted. When you have first ladies who go against that trend, like Barbara Bush, who always made a point of saying how she was wearing the same strand of pearls, and you can pretty much imagine her in that blue dress, that was always her her look. And you know some of that had to do with kind of like a branding on their part. But thank you for that question, Lana. Edward Mayshell reached out about a question that kind of goes right into what Lana had asked, and that was which president had the most swag. And if you're unfamiliar with the term, It really kind of means you have a stylish confidence. I don't know that I would say I have swag, but I certainly like wearing what I wear. And so with that, I definitely think that we had some presidents who had a bit of a swag to them. When I look at images of Andrew Jackson, (laughs) for instance, I think he always showed up looking pretty dapper and commanded the room, right? People were almost always gravitating to the swagger with which he walked around. I would put Chester Arthur up there with swag. I think he had a bit of a swag to him. And I definitely think when you read some of the things about Thomas Jefferson, and they see his reticence to get really dressed up as him being really kind of confident in who he was or maybe just not caring. And so I think those two things can probably go a little bit hand in hand. JFK is like the epitome, I think, of swag and you can think about him with his shades on and on the yacht as is something that is going to just be burned into Richard Nixon's psyche. <laughs> when you see Nixon trying to copy the Kennedys walking down the beach barefoot, and he wears his loafers into the ocean. I mean, that is telling you <laughs> that that was a very kind of prominent issue for, for Richard Nixon, who I think is maybe the anti-swag. Bill Clinton, I think, had a good amount of swag to him, I think, George W. Bush. Also, when you think through the Canadian tuxedo look of the early aughts that he was sometimes rocking. Now, Obama could turn the swag on and off. We are familiar with the mom jeans that he was blamed for wearing at certain points. The tan suit is either your taste or it's not. But a lot of times he did have a certain kind of casual effect to him and seemed to be pretty comfortable in his own skin. And then with Joe Biden in recent weeks where I've seen aviators coming on and people making memes about that, maybe you could say Joe Biden has a little bit of that Obama swag to him, but maybe not in the level that he would want or that other people would look for. So thank you for that question, Edward. My next question comes from fellow historian and good friend Jamie Wilson. Jamie and I met at the AP Reading and have remained good friends ever since. She's a big fan of the podcast as well. And she had two questions. The first one was, given all the site tours that you've been on, what makes a good tour? And that one's a little tricky, right? Like, I think my expectation for the sites might change depending on which one it is. I think you need to be an attentive tour guide. And I can speak from experience in that I have given tours before. When I was an undergrad at Ohio State, I got very skilled at walking backwards and pointing with umbrellas as a scholar's ambassador. That's what they called us. <laughs> and then at the Hay Center, I gave a few tours. And I think you need to know where your visitors are coming from, what their expectations are, what they might know, and being able to read cues. I think what I do as a professor is very similar, right? If you sense confusion in students' faces, then you know that you need to go more in depth on what that topic is. If they look like their eyes are glazing over, you need to work to get their attention back. And I think a lot of times I've seen Tour guides where they just completely check out or they want to focus too much on maybe the sensational parts maybe don't want to get into anything murky and I think you really just have to be willing to change it up as the tour goes through. I think Addressing head-on some of the more controversial aspects, that's always something that I really admire about specific tour guides. And I think speaking with authority, one of my rules about going on a tour, and maybe you feel a little bit different, I hate the show-off. I hate the people that go there, and they raise their hands, and what about this, and what about that, and you didn't mention this... I'm not that person, right? And like I said before, I know most of the stories that they're going to tell. I'm seldom like, oh, I'd never heard that before. Where did you get that from? I am going to more look at the way that you're presenting the information. And I want that tour guide to feel just as comfortable as I feel. And so I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable or make them feel like they're inadequate. So that has always just been one of my pet peeves. The people who go there and act like they're auditioning for the tour guide's role. The second question that Jamie has and kind of goes along with this, is which presidents are the hardest for you to grapple with in terms of the contrast between their most positive and most negative impacts? The immediate person that comes to mind is Thomas Jefferson. And I think we're seeing in real time how Monticello and the other Jefferson sites have to negotiate that contrast, right? You know, it's undeniable the contributions that Thomas Jefferson made to our country. The Declaration of Independence on its own would be one of the biggest contributions that somebody could provide to our country. And the fact that he then becomes a president is also super influential and super important. But then you also have to wrangle with some of the legacies, and that has to do. Certainly with displacement of natives, you also have to deal with his legacy in being an enslaver and somebody who abuses his slaves sexually. To act like none of that can be talked about is a huge issue for me, but to act like that's all we can talk about is also a big issue, and I think finding balance is going to be the most important thing you can do when it comes to how we address our different presidents and their legacies. Same thing with Woodrow Wilson. I think he's somebody that gets a lot of criticism, and for good reason. I'm not going to defend the things that he said, but I think it's important to kind of put in mind the context those people grew up in and where they would have gained their worldview and what impact that might have. And so looking at, again, the positives and with Woodrow Wilson, I always want to say he's a true believer. You might not believe the same way he does, but don't treat him like a cynic just because you're a cynic. That is something that I think is very important, that some of these men were operating with the best of intentions, the best that they were able to do, and it doesn't match up to what we would want or what we would expect and who you might think of yourself as, but they were different people, <laughs> and they're on a different journey, you're on a different journey, and maybe we need to just allow that as a overall allowance for president and for ourselves. So thank you for that question, Jamie. My next question comes from Kurt Dion, who you can hear in the bonus episode. We just met up in Rhode Island last month, and his question is, which president would you want to go on a road trip with, and who would you not want to go on a road trip with? For the definitely would go on a road trip with, I think the trio of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, I think they would have a lot of fun together. Every time I see photos of the three of them, they're always laughing and I think we would all get along really well. <laughs> I just have a feeling. I've had dreams when I from when I was younger where I would meet Bill Clinton, and he and I always got along really well, and I just know that we would be bros. I know we would have a very fun time together. In terms of presidents, I would not want to go on a road trip with. Donald Trump's at the top of that list. I think he would be very picky about where I was going. He probably wouldn't let me listen to music. He would be ranting the entire time. There's only so much of that I could take. I also probably wouldn't enjoy riding around with Teddy Roosevelt. I think he would just be too excitable and probably want me to be pulling off the road and go off-roading and doing things that would probably destroy my vehicle. I think any of the 19th century presidents would just be a real handful trying to get them in an automobile and then telling them, you know, shut up when they (laughs) are asking questions about how the vehicle runs and how long it can go and that kind of thing. I feel like some of them would be very appreciative. I remember reading about Andrew Jackson and James Polk and just how they couldn't go home for huge stretches because of how long it took for them to get there. And they would just love being on a highway in a vehicle driven by Joe Fakash and as fast as I go. So they might be appreciative, but just the initial line of questioning would probably get really annoying to me. So thank you for that question, Kurt. Alexis Mira asked the question, which of the president's homes would you most have wanted to live in? And I really like this question. I also got a similar question from Andrew Alexander, where he was asking about which one I wanted to grow up in. And I think those are two very different questions. When I was little, I was obsessed with like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and the idea of having like secret passages and just exploring things from top to bottom. And that part of me still comes out when I go through some of the larger homes. For instance, like Monticello, Rutherford Hayes' Spiegel Grove, James Garfield's Lawnfield, Teddy Roosevelt's Sagamore Hill, Franklin Roosevelt's Springwood. All of those would be amazing to have grown up in. I just would kind of lose my mind being able to run around them and figure things out and find little places to hide and that kind of thing. In terms of like where I would want to live now as my tastes have changed, the way I'm going to answer this, Alexis, is I'm going to take the different parts of the homes, my favorites of each room, or type of room. So for instance, my favorite dining room is Martin Van Buren's in Lindenwald, and the idea of having that wallpaper around the room. It's not the ugly colors that, for instance, Andrew Jackson and George Washington used on their own walls. And so I would want that dining room in terms of a living room or an area to like be really formal in. I would take Thomas Jefferson's music parlor, the room that's kind of octagonal in the back. And I just think that that room is always something that I would have a very fun time just like looking around and hanging out in there, maybe sprawling it out a little bit more. I would want it to be a little bit more lived in. I would also love as like a kind of centerpiece room. I would love Teddy Roosevelt's where he has the room with all of the tusks and stuff. I probably wouldn't have that many tusks. I I definitely wouldn't. But I do think that that room feels very cozy. My favorite library of all of them is definitely a tie between... Franklin Roosevelt's, which is just so big, but also has these small areas that you can hang out in. And then James Garfield's library where you have that vault, you have all of the different items from his life. So if we could combine those two, that's something that I would be kind of about. In terms of a bedroom from a presidential home, I'm always really drawn to the bedroom situation that Thomas Jefferson had where he's in the alcove and so he has that kind of his own bedroom, but then can very easily just turn over the wrong way and go into your study and library. I really like that. I also remember this last trip where I really liked the bedroom that Franklin Roosevelt had and also the Andrew Jackson, even though his furnishings were much more dramatic. In terms of like a yard that I would love to have, I'm really drawn to James Madison's at Montpelier, where he has this beautiful formal garden. I also love the garden at Hyde Park. And then in terms of like a front yard, you can't beat Thomas Jefferson's. Like that would just be ideal for me. This kind of goes into the question then that Andrew Alexander also posed, where he's asking which presidential home would be the best for a wedding spot. Now, he did ask it as a presidential site, so I'm going to answer using all four of the different categories that I've had, and that includes a library. If I was having to get married at one of the president's birthplaces, I would definitely choose William Henry Harrison's Berkeley Plantation. Now, it is a plantation, and I do have feelings about that, but in terms of like idyllic settings, I think that would be at the top of the list. If I can't get married there, who's would I pick? It would probably be Abraham Lincoln's, like what an entrance. <laughs> I think that would be pretty nice. Maybe William McKinley's in Niles, Ohio. In terms of a presidential home that I would want to get married in, I think Sagamore Hill would be really beautiful. Monticello, of course, is a very obvious answer. I think Spiegel Grove, where Rutherford Hayes lived, would be a very nice one. And maybe we would go with the Hermitage again, if you can get past the idea of being at a plantation. In terms of a gravesite, <laughs> That I would want to get married at. And I'm answering this as honestly as I can, Andrew. I would pick for a macabre setting, the James Garfield gravesite in Cleveland. I would also recommend the Rose Garden where Franklin Roosevelt is buried in Hyde Park. If you again can get past the fact that you're standing at his gravesite, I think you could obscure it in some way. Again, this is being completely disrespectful. And I really wouldn't advise doing this in any fashion, but answering the question as best I can. For a library, I do know that they have weddings at the Richard Nixon Library because when Andrew and I visited in April, they were getting ready for a wedding. And so it was a beautiful setting. Like that is a place that you could really have a lot of fun with. And so maybe that one would be the one that would stick out. Same with the sunset setting of the Ronald Reagan Library. Beautiful place and one that you could really kind of have uh, some great photos. You know how that important that is to me you follow my feed at all. And so those would be my recommendations for that. So I'm glad we were able to end on a kind of high note, (laughs) like the idea of planning for this non-existent wedding of mine, but also the idea of getting to look at the different presidential sites and what they would offer in terms of aesthetics and overall vibe. So that's something to kind of consider. If you have your own ideas, certainly shoot me a message or you know, you can write a comment on any of the social media about which sites you would prefer. Any of the questions, if you didn't like my answer, if you wanted to add something, you know, certainly let me know. I'm very, very much looking forward to hearing what you all thought of some of my responses. So, I hope this was fun for everybody. I'm looking forward to seeing some of the feedback. Make sure that you're liking and subscribing on the various social media platforms, writing a review on the podcast player of your choice, and considering donating to Visiting the Presidents. Remember, all of your funds are used to help better the site, better the podcast, help me with future trips, and so it would be greatly appreciated, and I appreciate all those who have helped so far. Next week, we will be heading to Canton, Ohio, and the homes of William McKinley. I look forward to seeing you out there on the road as we continue to visit the presidents. See ya.